because we're highlighting Revolve Youth Ministry, I thought that I would select a section of scripture that highlights what Revolve is all about. I've been doing youth ministry for over a decade now, and when I first began, I was alarmed by how many students professed salvation but did not actually seem to possess it. The more I got involved with other ministries within the church, I came to the realization that this is not a problem that is exclusive to youth ministry, but it is an epidemic within the church. Having an awareness of this problem has led me on a journey to discover what the Bible says constitutes true salvation. As I embarked down this road, I was able to better help people understand if their salvation was real. And more than that, I was swimming in a sea of theological confusion, and I needed to know if my salvation was the real thing. This journey has proved to be ministry-shaping for me and life-transforming for me personally. So, I hope that this message helps you understand the passion that we have for youth, but also brings some clarity to whether or not you are saved. So, what are the marks of true salvation? Perhaps, the word that best captures the answer to this question is the word disciple. Disciple. Please turn your Bible if you're not already there, to Luke chapter 14. To Luke chapter 14. Today we'll be reading verses 25 through 30. Might I exhort you before we read with the words of Lamentations 340. Let us examine and probe our ways and let us return to the Lord. Verse 25 of Luke 14. Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all of his possessions. Therefore, salt is good. But if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Please pray with me. 
Father, we thank you so much for not leaving us in this world without a compass. We thank you for your word. And we ask now that you would send your spirit to give us understanding and transformation. Would you show the unconverted that they are in need of your salvation and save them, God? And lead us who know you to further abandon the empty pleasures of this world and trade them in for the pleasures of knowing you. In Jesus' name, amen. I have five points this morning. I changed one of them uh, from the graphics. Let me give them to you. Um, But let me say that it may turn into a three-point sermon, depending on time. Again, the title for my message is A Call to Discipleship. My points are the meaning of discipleship, the concern of discipleship, the cost of discipleship, the longevity of discipleship, and the necessity of discipleship. The crescendo of this sermon really is at the end of number three. We'll get there. So, number one, the meaning of discipleship. The meaning of discipleship. Why do we need to know the meaning of discipleship? Well, because it's not a term that's very common in our vernacular. And it's a term that is radically confused in modern evangelicalism. When I began to really dive into the Bible, I was struck by how often Jesus and other New Testament writers use this word, disciple. It's clear that this group has demands placed on them by our Lord. But it did not seem to me that the church was telling people that Jesus is placing these demands on them. And so this observation led me to ask the question, and maybe you've asked this question before. Can you be a Christian and not be a disciple? I asked this question because a lot of my Christian friends at the time did not look anything like the disciples that I was reading in the Bible. I remember asking a pastor at the church I was attending at the time, and I asked him this question, and I remember his answer vividly. He told me, yes, you can be a Christian and not be a disciple. I just figured that I was missing something, and I mean, after all, he was a pastor So I needed to go and to find out what I was missing. Because according to that pastor, disciples were different from Christians. But the more I read about this group of people called disciples, I wanted to be one. I joined the Marines when I was 18 years old. I ended up serving eight months in Operation Iraqi Freedom. And the reason I joined the Marines is because my grandfather was a lieutenant colonel in the Marine Corps. And he always told me growing up that uh, the Marines were the best. So when I turned 18 and wanted to join the armed forces, I just figured, well, if I'm going to do this, I guess I'm going to go with the best. It's kind of the same for me in my walk with Christ. If disciples were different than Christians, then I didn't want to be a Christian. I wanted to be a disciple. I wanted to be the best among them. You see, but something happened. 
the more I read about this group of people called disciples, I realized that that pastor gave me the wrong answer. And I needed a theological correction. So, what is the meaning of disciple? The passage that we've read, Jesus uses this word three times. He uses it in verse 26, you cannot be my disciple. He uses it in verse 27, you cannot be my disciple. And he uses it in verse 33, you cannot be my disciple. So, to answer this question, what is a disciple? Uh, we just need apply a very simple hermeneutic. It's a method of interpretation. It's the method of interpretation that don, uh, dominates us at this church. And we just want to look at this word from a grammatical and historical perspective, meaning what does the grammar say? And then we want to look at it from a historical perspective, meaning what would the original audience have understood this to mean? And what was the original author's intent in using this word? So, the Greek word for disciple is mathetes, and the BDAG, it's a Greek lexicon, basically a Greek dictionary, defines this word as one who engages in learning through instruction from another, a pupil or apprentice. I wanted to be one of these elite guys, so to speak, called the disciples, and I figured I was on a good track. I was a pupil of Jesus. I was his student, so I was on my way to being a disciple. But what does this word mean historically? Let's kind of cut to the chase here, and let's just ask, what did the author mean when he used this word? We know that scripture is written by the Holy Spirit, ultimately, and he uh, inspired men to write his word. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke. And so the question we need to ask is, why would Luke choose this word? What did he learn from Jesus that, that caused him to pen this word? And did Luke write this word down anywhere else? Well, when you go through the Gospel of Luke, Luke only uses this word disciple three times. And guess where it is? In the section of Scripture that we just read. So the next question we need to ask is, well, if we're going to understand what Luke meant, did Luke write any other books of the Bible? And the answer, church, you should know this, he did, and he wrote what book? The book of Acts. So in order to get a Luke perspective on this word, I, I now want to go to the book of Acts, and I want to look up all the places where Luke used this word. So I went on a journey to discover what was Luke talking about when he used this word, because again, it's, it's not a common word in our vernacular. And so let's just cut right to the chase, and Luke eventually, as he unfolds the meaning of this word, kind of gets to the main point in Acts chapter 11. Would you just turn there with me briefly, just because I want you to get your eyes on this. Acts chapter 11, notice the, word, the verse, I'm sorry, 26. Barnabas was looking for Paul. They were in Antioch. Verse 26 of Acts chapter 11 says, And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. Listen to this. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Now, the word Christian, it's actually a derogatory term. Romans began to make fun of this group of people called disciples because they were Christ-like. That's what the word Christian means. And we were first given this name in Antioch. 
after Jesus had ascended and Paul began his ministry. But prior to us being called Christians, we were called what? Disciples. This verse makes it explicitly clear that a disciple and a Christian is synonymous. Is synonymous. I was elated to discover this because a guy who wanted to be a disciple, once I stumbled across Acts 11.26, I realized that I was already a what? A disciple. I was already a disciple. But this answer, this truth, creates an enormous problem. Why? Because if a Christian is a disciple, and a disciple is a Christian, listen to this, I can no longer call myself a Christian if my life does not look like the description that is given for disciples. So now I gotta go back through the New Testament and I gotta reread the word disciple and everywhere it's used. And then I gotta ask the question Am I one of them? Am I one of them? Does your life meet the demands that Jesus placed upon this group called disciples? This is really the heart of our youth ministry and why it's called Revolve. It comes from Colossians 1.18 where it says that Jesus is the head of the church so that he might have first place in everything. Our lives revolve around Christ. There's a lie going around in the church today that says that we order our lives, God, family, church, work, whatever. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says that Jesus is first in our marriage. Jesus is first in our parenting. Jesus is first in our spending of money. Jesus is first in our occupations. Jesus first in all things. I want to be a disciple. So you, you see the problem, right? Because you, you know it as well as I do. You, you meet people and they tell you, I'm a... But then you weigh their life against the demands of discipleship. And they're wanting. Well, now we have a problem. Because you've defined being a Christian in a way that is different than the way Jesus has defined being a Christian. It's one of the reasons that Jesus says in Matthew 7, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, I even dot, dot, dot in your name, and he will say, away from me, for I never knew you. Point number two, the concern of discipleship, the concern of discipleship. Look at verse 25. Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, I want you to notice uh, two words or phrases that are given here. Number one, large crowds, and number two, going along with. Uh, crowds is a crowd of people, and Luke wanted us to understand it wasn't a small amount of people, it was a very large amount of people coming to Jesus. And then notice the phrase going along with. This was a group of people that, were they students of Christ? No, they weren't. They were going along with him. They were interested in him. He was a curiosity to them. He was thought-provoking to them. They thought he had good things to say. 
But Jesus was not interested in them going along with him. Jesus was interested in them being his disciples. Someone who goes along with Jesus is someone who is interested, heard something, or maybe someone who even goes to church. But they're not actually following Christ. There is a difference. By the way, let me insert this. Here's a freebie for you. Sometimes people ask when rough kids come to the youth group or someone comes to the college group and wants to smoke outside, they say, Pastor Ryan, should you let them smoke outside? And I say, yes. Why? Listen to me. This building is not the church. The church is the people of God who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We are living stones being up into, built up into a holy temple for the praise and glory of our God. This building, this room, is not a sanctuary. Because a sanctuary is the place where what? God dwells. This is a worship center. Definition of words matter. So yeah, come on in, curious. Come on in, seekers. Come and listen. Come with your sin. It's not going to hurt us. Just because you're here doesn't mean you're a member of the church. Are you truly following Christ? Are you following Christ? Here we see Jesus calling a large crowd to a full commitment. A commitment that places him as the supreme priority of their lives. Isn't it interesting how Jesus handles a large crowd? Notice that he saw it as an opportunity to separate true followers from the phonies. Let me say it another way. Jesus is concerned with quality, not quantity, when it comes to his followers. How different is this than our modern evangelicalism today? We are so concerned with filling this building with a massive amount of people, and when there's a large crowd, we all of a sudden feel what? Successful. We've arrived. Wow, something must really be going on here. I mean, there's just massive amounts of people. When large crowds came to Jesus, you know what happened to him? He didn't make him happy. It made him grieve. Because when he looked out at the masses, he was concerned about the genuineness of their salvation. Crowds should not give us opportunity to sit back and think that we're successful. They should cause true shepherds great grief to see the souls of those sitting before them truly ushered into heaven for all time. Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Matthew 7, 13. Through 14. Point number three, the cost of discipleship. Now, we've defined discipleship and we've seen the concern that Christ has for it. Now we need to see the cost. But what I want to do is I want to help you see the cost, but then I want to ask and answer the question. Why is there a cost, listen to this, if salvation is free? 
We know that as Christians, that it's free to heaven. We can't work our way into heaven. We can't purchase it. God is too holy. We are too sinful to satisfy a holy God. And so in his grace and his mercy, he sent his son to give us the free gift of salvation. So if salvation is free, why does Jesus say that it's going to cost? Have you ever asked that question? I got to pay something? I, I thought it was free. There's four costs Jesus has in this section. Number one, hate your family, verse 26a. Notice, if anyone comes to me, does not hate his father, mother, that's your parents, your wife and your children, that's your spouse and your kids, and then your siblings, your brothers and sisters. You cannot be my disciple. Let's use the term Christian and disciple synonymously. If anyone does not hate his parents, his spouse, his children, his siblings, he cannot be a Christian. Does that cause you to freak out a little bit? I mean, it causes me to freak out because I thought Jesus told us that we're supposed to love our wives, right? Ephesians 5. So Paul said, I thought I'm supposed to love my enemy, love my neighbor. All right, I'm a little confused here. What, what's going on? Notice the other demands, the other costs. He also says in verse 26, not only are you supposed to hate your family, you're supposed to hate your life. Then verse 27 says you've got to carry a cross. You've got to hate your family, hate yourself, carry a cross, and then verse 33, give all your money away. What? How does this compute with a free gift? That sounds expensive to me. Well, at least it did it first. And if that sounds expensive to you, I want to show you why it's not as expensive as you think. But let's take a moment to briefly examine each of these. Hate your family. Parents, spouse, children, siblings. Now, really, the word that captures our attention is the word what? Hate. I'm not used to hearing Jesus use that kind of word. This is strange. I, I thought I was supposed to love everybody. What Jesus is saying here is not that we are to hate in the way that we would see hate. doesn't mean that you should go home and tell your wife that you hate her and you're never going to do dishes again or vacuum, gentlemen, or fold a diaper. Jesus told me I, I can't. doesn't mean that you neglect your children. It doesn't mean that you neglect honoring your mother and your father as we're commanded to do. What Jesus is saying here, this was kind of like a, a, a Hebrew expression, and it means to love less. Jesus used this in another way when he said in Luke 16, 13, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. In other words, you're not supposed to hate your family. But you're supposed to love Jesus so much that your love for him makes your love for your family look like hatred. What dominates your decision making? Is it Jesus? Or your children? Your spouse? Your parents? Or is it Jesus? Not only do you got to hate your family, you, you got to hate yourself. You got to hate yourself. 
Look at the word in verse 26. Hate, and then even his own life. Everybody see that word, life? It's where we get our English word, psychology. It is defined as life on earth in its animating aspect, making bodily function possible. When we pull the word hate and the word life together, we see that it means to give preference to what Jesus thinks, wants, and wills over what you think, want, and will. It means to love what Christ says more than what your conscience says. It means to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How many times do we make decisions and it's all based on our own thinking? How often do we stop and ask the question, what does the Bible say? What does Jesus say? To hate your psyche, that's the word, is to let your thinking become subservient to Christ. How do you know that that's happening in your life? When is the last time you heard preaching that caused you to change your theology or read a verse that caused you to change your theology because the Spirit of God showed you that you were wrong in your thinking? See, what we like to do because it gives us comfort We find our justification in the blood of Christ, but sometimes what we do is we stop finding our justification in Christ and we start finding our justification in our systems. And so we hold on to this doctrine because it's what we've always been given. And so anytime something opposes it, we're unwilling to examine where we stand and we just say that's wrong. Be careful. Hate your psyche. What does Jesus have to say? Hate your family, hate your life, that has to do with your thinking, so to speak. Well, before we move on, let me give you this quote by William McDonald. He says this, instead of living self-centered lives, we must live Christ-centered lives. Instead of asking how every action will affect ourselves, we must be careful to assess how it will affect Christ in his glory. End quote. Number three, the third cost? You've got to carry a cross. You've got to carry a cross. Verse 27, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, this is interesting because when we think of cross, we think of what? Salvation. We think of the day God died and paid for our sin. But that's not what this audience would have been thinking. Jesus hadn't died yet. They didn't understand the full ramifications of what he was about to do. So we got to ask the question again, what is the original recipients? How would they have seen this word cross? And the answer is they would have just seen it uh, as a mode of execution. That's what they saw. They were in the Roman Empire. They knew that a cross meant execution. So when Jesus is saying here that you can't be my disciple if you don't carry your own cross, he's saying to them, uh, you need to hate your life your attitude, your will, your thinking, your mind, but you also need to be willing to sacrifice your body. This is a a total rejection of self, internal and external. Pick up your cross. Pick up your mode of execution. He said to Peter at the end of the book of John, Peter, you're going to go die for me. Peter kind of was freaked out by that and says, well, what about John? And Jesus says, what is it to you if he remains until I come? You follow me. 
And as we look down the halls of church history over the last 2,000 years, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of our Christian brothers and sisters have been martyred for Jesus Christ. True disciples. Not all of us are called to necessarily give our physical lives. But you have to be prepared to give it if it's asked of you for the glory and witness of Christ. Or you cannot be his disciple. Hate your family, hate yourself, hate your flesh, hate your stuff. Verse 33, so then if none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all of his own possessions. The word give up or the phrase give up is actually one word in Greek. It's an interesting word. It's where we get our English word apostasy. It means to express a former formal farewell, or to say goodbye. No servant can serve two masters. Later, money. How many of you give to the Lord on a regular basis? What do you love more? Jesus? Or yourself. Now, hear me, I know some of us, and I was one of them, who had a financial portfolio that was so out of control, I wanted to give, but I couldn't give because I was so lost in debt. We're going to be offering a class from Dave Ramsey in January on Financial Peace University that teaches you how to get to debt, out of debt. Revolutionized my and my wife's life, and it freed us up to give. So if you want to give, but you're struggling because of maybe bad decisions you've made in the past, there is redemption, and we're going to help you with that as best as we can in January. You need to give up your stuff. Okay, those are the costs, but, but why? Let's, let's kind of try to dig a little deeper here. Would you do that with me? And this is kind of really get us down to why I was so concerned that so many people make a profession of salvation, but they don't have a possession of it. To understand why there's a cost, listen to this, requires us to understand the main point of the gospel. The ultimate end of the gospel is not forgiveness. Is that surprising to you? Let me say that again. The point of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is not what? Forgiveness. What's the problem with thinking that that's the ultimate end of the gospel? Well, once you get forgiveness, you're going to go out and do whatever you want, right? I'm forgiven. Well, then if that's not the ultimate point of the gospel, what's the ultimate point of the gospel? You ready for this? Fellowship. God forgives you for the purpose of reuniting you with himself. Forgiveness is just a step along the way. But a true relationship with God is the point Forgiveness enables that. It's not the point of it. Let me try to help you understand this a little bit more. Jesus removes the wrath of the Father through his blood, and our guilt is taken away, and we are counted righteous because of the life of Christ. That all happens in the gospel. God is holy. We are not. We deserve judgment. So the Father, in his great love, sends his Son, pours out his wrath on his Son, the Son absorbs His righteous anger, so therefore the Father has no anger left for you and me. 
God's not mad at us anymore. But God also views us as clean and, and our conscience is now washed and we're righteous in the sight of God because of the righteousness of Christ. But why? What's the point of all that? You ever asked that? Answer? So you can be with the Father. So you can be with Him. So you can walk with Him. So you can delight to know Him. The point of the gospel is restoring us. It's restoration so that we can know him. This is why we love Jesus more than anything. It is because nothing else satisfies us. It's because the gospel has given us a taste of the Father. And now we want him. We want him so badly that we're willing to forsake our families. We want him so badly that we're willing to forsake our stuff. We want him so badly that we're willing to forsake ourselves. We love him. And so you can have all this world, just give me Jesus. That's the point of the gospel. And so when people walk around and say that they're Christian, but they don't love him, unsaved do you know him away from me for I never knew you do you know him do you delight to meet with him do you walk with him do you talk with him does he talk to you do you know him you need to know him because when you know him Take it all. David said it this way in Psalm 27, 4. One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and meditate in his temple. That's one thing. It's all I want. This guy had all the women. He had all the money. He had everything he wanted. And all he said is, I just want to be with you. Salvation is not just fire insurance to get out of hell. It does do that. It does take us out of a bad standing with the Father. But that's not the main point. It's to bring us into a right relationship with the Father so that we can be with him. Listen to how some of the New Testament writers put this. Peter says in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also died for sins. Once for all, right? So Christ died. Listen to this. The just for the unjust. Why? Listen. So that he might bring us to God. Why did he do this? To bring us to God. To bring us to God. What's the point of the gospel? To bring us to God. This is how Paul said it in Ephesians 2.18. Listen to this. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father to bring us to God, to give us access to God. This is how the author of Hebrews says this. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Draw near, draw near, draw near, draw near, draw near, draw near. That's the point. We're not playing church. This is weird what we're doing right here. You're listening to a 34-year-old man yell at you and people think this is just weird. This is weird to the world. 
But why are you doing it? I hope it's not because you came in here so that me or Rob or Neil entertain you. I hope it's because you love him so much that you just want to hear. I just want to see him give me a taste. Preacher, give me Christ. Don't tickle my ears and give me a self-help seminar. I want Jesus. All right, I probably said that too forcefully. When we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, there's nothing else we want. Salvation is free. But to truly possess it is to want nothing else. It's to be so satisfied in him that we're willing to sell it all. He's the pearl of great price. We found him in a field or the treasure and we sold all that we had to have him. After Jesus makes his call for a commitment that runs deeper than intrigue, he offers two similes to make this truth more vivid. We'll go through these points rather quickly. I still have 10 minutes, so we're doing pretty good. Point number four, the longevity of discipleship. Verses 28 through 32. Verses 28 through 32. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish it, all who observe it began to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Two similes to make the point that discipleship or that being a Christian is not a momentary commitment it is a commitment that lasts all of your life so that you're able to complete it. It means what Jesus is saying here, he's saying, look, if you want to be my disciple, you're going to have to hit all this stuff. And then the, na- the natural next question is, well, Jesus, how long do I got to hit all that stuff? And the answer is forever until salvation is totally complete. So he gives these similes. One is a completion of a tower and the other is victory and conflict. And just to point this out in the text for you, just notice three words, two words and a phrase rather. The word complete in verse 28, the word finish in verse 29 and 30, and the phrase strong enough in verse 31. You want to be my disciple? You better complete it. You want to be my disciple? You better finish it. That's what he's saying. The Greek word in verse 31 for strong enough is the word dunatos, and it means to be capable, competent, or possible. The idea with these two illustrations is to say that your commitment to him cannot be momentary, but a willingness to follow him to the end, no matter how painful it gets. Building a tower was a difficult thing. Winning a battle with a number that was twice your, against you, twice the size of your number, is a difficult thing. Do you understand that when Jesus calls you to salvation, he's not calling you to an easy thing? 
it's not easy for me to give up these things. It's not e- I know it, it's not easy for you. It's not easy for me. I know it. But do you pay the cost? See, that's how you can gauge your love for the, lo- the Savior. By the cost that you're willing to pay. That's the point. True discipleship is costly. Lastly, fifth point, it lasts until the end. And lastly, it's absolutely necessary to salvation. It is absolutely necessary to salvation. Or the point that I wrote down was the necessity of discipleship. Notice verse 34 and 35. Jesus just wants to, he doesn't want to give us any wiggle room to get out of this so he, he just kind of gives us a summation with a warning. Therefore, salt is good, but if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus uses the word salt here because he's used it as a metaphor for disciples before. Remember where the salt and light of the earth we, we shine who he is. We show his glory to the world. But we also are a preservative in an unholy world. What he's saying is he's saying that, now, you've got to understand that salt cannot become tasteless. It can't. But the salt that they got came from the Dead Sea, and it was often uh, mixed with gypsum. And when it was mixed with gypsum, it would take away its usefulness as a preservative it would kind of corrupt whatever it was trying to be used for so they had to just throw the salt away but when they threw the salt away they couldn't throw it in the soil Uh, some of you ladies and gentlemen may garden and uh, if you go and take a big thing of salt and sprinkle it all over your garden what's going to happen you're going to kill your plants you're going to kill your flowers it's going to suck the moisture all out of it right and uh, you can't throw salt in a manure pile because a manure pile is used for compost. And if you're going to use compost for your garden, you can't throw your salt in a manure pile. So salt that loses its purpose, you can't eat it, you can't put it in the soil, and you can't put it in the poop pile. So what do you do with it? You throw it away. What Jesus is saying here is he's saying, listen, Following me is to be dominated by a love for me that makes everything else in your life look like lesser loves. And it's a love that lasts until the end of time. And if this is something that you are unwilling to do or that you do not possess, you are worthless to me. And he's God, so he can say that. Our God and our creator has a right to say to his creation, you're useless to me if you don't love me. So how is it that we go around professing to be Christians with our words, but everything in our life reveals that Jesus is not the most important thing to us? In closing, let me sum up all that I have said with one simple phrase. True Christians are those who love Jesus more than everything until the end. True Christians are those who love Jesus more than everything until the end.
Why am I concerned that many profess that they are saved but do not seem to possess true salvation? It's simple. They say they're Christians, but they don't really love Jesus. So how about it? Where does your commitment to Christ begin and end? What are you unwilling to give up to follow Christ? What dominates the way you spend your money? The associations that you make? The love that you showed to yourself? I'd like to leave you this morning with a quote from the great 19th century preacher, Charles Spurgeon. Quote, We love relationships, but as compared with him, we could hate father and mother and sister and brother for his name's sake. When a certain martyr was about to be burned, they brought out his wife and his 11 children and bade them kneel in one long row to ask their father for their sakes to consent to deny the faith and live. But as he kissed them one by one and lingered longest over the dear mother of them all, he said, I would do anything for your sakes, my dear ones, that I might live with you. But since it is for Christ, my Lord's sake, I must tear myself away from even you. When Jesus is in the soul, the idols leave their thrones. He loves us out of the pit of idolatry. Please pray with me. Glory be to our great God who sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin, to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purchase for us an eternal inheritance. Our Father, we love you and we love your beloved son, Jesus Christ, and the spirit whom you sent. We ask that you would change our affections from the things of this world to the things of heaven. Would you satisfy us with your goodness? Would you satisfy us with your presence? We invite you, O oh God, to be what we want and long for as a church. We love you because it is you who has first loved us.